Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Once again, reminding you that on November 13th, a Sunday in New York, just a little less than three months from now, we will be roasting Barry Weiss at our 12th annual Commentary Roast, a great event, a wonderful event. People love this event. That's why we've been having it for 12 years and why 400 people come every year to join us in high good humor and off the record uh, shenanigans. We've roasted uh, Ben Shapiro. We've roasted Mayor Soloveitchik. We've roasted Dick Cheney. We've roasted Joe Lieberman. We've roasted Norman Podhoritz. We've roasted Roger Hertog. We've roasted Dan Senor. We've roasted others. And now we are roasting Barry Weiss, um, perhaps the leading young journalist of the moment. Um, and someone that we both love and think needs to be taken down a couple of pegs. And that's what we do at the roast. We love them and we tease them and you should come. So go to commentary.org slash roast for uh, information and details uh, about how to attend commentary.org slash roast with me as always, executive editor, a Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John and associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so, <clears throat> sorry about that. If you heard that, that's some weird effect where my phone starts playing on my computer. I don't know how to stop it. Don't know how to stop it, and I'm pretty computer literate. Anyway, so my apologies for that. Um uh, Liz Cheney is up for a re-election, uh, is up a primary challenge. Uh, everybody tells us she's going to lose in Wyoming. Um, and she's going to lose because she turned on Trump, and this is a uh, highly Republican state. Uh, there are, like, almost no Democrats, by the way. So the strategy you kept hearing about, that Democrats should cross over and the primary and vote for Cheney, wouldn't save her in any case. It's like 80-20 or something like that. Republican to Democratic registration. So um, Liz Cheney was, of course, I think the number three person in the House Republican leadership before uh, January 6th, was then evicted from the House Republican leadership after January 6th, and is now going to be rousted from office. The only thing I can compare this to is Joe Lieberman um, in 2006 when uh after the 2004 re-election and uh george w bush came down the aisle at the state of the union speech uh in congress and saw lieberman and went over to him and gave him a hug and a kiss and that kiss alone was enough to doom joe lieberman in the democratic party he lost his primary in 2006 to Ned Lamont, who uh, eventually became governor of Connecticut, which he is now. Uh, Lieberman, though, a person of you know immense uh, uh, standing in Connecticut, then ran as an independent and won his seat for one more term before retiring in 2012. I can't think of any precedent comparable to what's happening uh, to Liz Cheney. John Miller, uh, Lisa Murkowski, 2010. Okay, so what happened with? But then Lisa Murkowski want to write it. Yeah, right. But then, but then, right. So yeah, so a Tea Party, tea party challenged, challenged, 
Right. In a in an unbelievably low turnout primary. And then Lisa Murkowski, actually, astonishingly enough, Senator from uh, from Alaska, won in a write in. I mean, I don't know that anyone has ever practically before in a statewide election, even it's a small state, granted, like 250,000 people vote or something like that in, in, in the elections. But um, but she won a write in. That's pretty astounding. So we're talking about Cheney being like toast. Uh, as of tonight, apparently she will be she will be uh, done, and she seems totally at peace with it. Like she is proud of herself. She's proud that she withstood the slings and arrows of her of her party's opinion. She believes that Donald Trump is a unique threat to American democracy, and that what she is doing is righteous and God's work. And it's interesting because that. Righteousness is perceived by many as self-righteousness, as righteousness often can seem or can tip into. Um, and so you have both uh, anger at her going at the putative leader of her party and then anger at her comportment as the leader of the anti-Trump resistance in the Republican camp. Um, I it's a yeah, go ahead. They, it's a strange brand of self-righteousness that that puts your whole career in peril. I mean, I think that sort of gives away that it's not self-righteousness. Well, and you know whose behavior is far more uh, bizarre? I mean, you know, if you'd write it, it would be a bad country Western song is Kevin McCarthy, who just a few years ago was praising and defending Cheney and is now like holed up at the Four Seasons in in. Uh, in her hometown, you know, getting ready to celebrate her defeat. I mean, he is the one who's whose whole story of, you know, claiming that that Trump should be held responsible in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, condemn, you know, saying, I'm going to go talk to him, I'm going to tell him this. And then he instantly turned on a dime. I mean, one of the most, you know, amoral sort of political acts one can imagine. And and his his interactions with Cheney actually only redounded to her effect, I think, because she maintained a course, a consistent course. Um, her opinion didn't shift with the wind. She didn't try to curry favor with Trump. She didn't, she just, she's doing her job. And yeah, she does occasionally come off as sanctimonious. It's been kind of hilarious to watch people who, to whom the name Cheney would never cross their lips in previous eras, praise a Cheney. So there's been a lot of ironies here, but it's Kevin McCarthy's behavior here that, that moderate Republican voters should remember. That guy should not be leading a party. He doesn't have a moral compass. It would be impossible to find one. And he's not really done well uh, in his leadership position. Well, don't worry, because he's not leading a party. I mean, any whatever Kevin McCarthy is, right. he's not a leader, except in a technical sense that he won an election among 200 and something Republicans to be the leader of their caucus. And if they win the race, uh, if they win the House back in November, he will presumably possibly, I don't know, not, not 100 percent, but he will likely become uh, the majority leader, uh, the Speaker of the House. But again, he will do so by dint of the votes of 200 something people not an entire party and he reminds me of one of my favorite characters in 20th century popular culture uh larry tate from bewitched so if you remember larry tate he ran the advertising agency that darren the husband of samantha the witch worked for and the thing about larry tate was he was a person of absolutely no fixed point so uh something would happen 
there would be some crazy spell and there would be an elephant in the living room and Darren would have to improvise a slogan for the client that was account was up and he would say, you know, an elephant never forgets to eat Brantford cereal or something like that. And then Larry Tate would say, Darren, that is terrible. And then the client would say, but interesting. And then Larry Tate would say a terribly interesting idea. As long as the client liked it, that was Larry Tate. And Kevin McCarthy is Larry Tate, and Donald Trump is the client. And any pretzel shape that he needs to fold himself and tie himself into, Kevin McCarthy will do because he is, as uh, somebody who once wrote a book about uh, Dick Gephardt, the um, the uh, great uh, the Democratic House uh, member for many years. Uh, he is the appetite that walks like a man. All he wants is to be Speaker of the House. It doesn't matter how he gets there. It doesn't matter what principles he sacrifices. It doesn't matter how he twists himself into a pretzel. It doesn't matter that he betrays the thing that he said two weeks earlier or behaves monstrously toward Liz Cheney. He is going to get what he wants, and it may be a poison chalice. Uh, Even if you're a MAGA voter, I don't understand why you would think that Kevin McCarthy is an organizationally effective, competent leader. He's he's failed on multiple occasions to keep the conference in line in the pursuit of Trumpian objectives. He lost 13 Republicans who voted with Democrats for the infrastructure package. He lost, I think, almost 30 Republicans, 30 something Republicans uh, over the vote on the bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th despite his stated objections to these sort of things. And he takes the bait very often. He's promised now to reinstate Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, both of whom were removed from their committee assignments by the Democratic majority. Um, So he's been baited into saying that they should be reassigned to their particular committee posts. But Republicans have benefited from their lack of visibility and will suffer as a result of it. So even if you're, you know, uh, on this populist train, you know, pushing the Republican Party towards a more nationalist agenda. I don't think Kevin McCarthy's your guy. Well, and he's endorsed, you know, Hageman. Is that how you say her name? You know, Cheney's uh, primary opponent, who is an out and out election 2020 election denier. She's like the election was rigged. This is bad. So in, in terms of even if you think strategically he's doing all of this to get to get regain control of, of the house for the republicans it's still a very backward looking mess he's going to fill he, they're, they're supporting people who are going to spend the next two years relitigating the previous election rather than looking ahead to the next one well but all look, the, I, I, if you're a MAGA voter all that matters is that trump accepts his, his obeisance right that that he he welcomes him into the fold then you can work out the details Advancing the cause doesn't matter particularly much. It's not about that. It's about, you know, to, to, to some extent, the cause is being an irritant. And if you can continue to do that, then, then you're on board. Look, I mean, Larry Tate ran a successful advertising agency. I mean, you know, that's the problem with uh, being a worm is that worms uh, can slither around and get around things and bury themselves up and then pull themselves under. They and get Kevin very McCarthy, fat on, in a, under a dark rock. They can grow very large yeah. and fat, yes. <laughs> and Kevin McCarthy is politically a worm, but he shows the, you know, he shows the kind of survivalist instincts and advantages that, you know, you would prefer, I think, to be a man rather than a worm if, uh, you know, if you are a person that believes in, you know, integrity and, principle and 
fealty to your word and things like that. But, you know, if you're willing to be a worm, you know, Zygazun to you, you should be a worm and you should see how, you know, how you how you are taken uh, when you get into trouble. You know, uh, if you are somebody who displays no actual loyalty or fidelity or anything like that, you know, I don't know if Jim Jordan wants to run against. Why can't Jim Jordan run against Kevin McCarthy? What has Kevin McCarthy ever done for Jim Jordan? What what you know? Why you know we we don't know what's going to happen in in November, and that would be a kind of suitable conclusion to this shame his shameful behavior. But I I also want to point out because maybe I mean we know this, but maybe our listeners don't. That it's not as if Liz Cheney was some radically liberal Republican during her time in office. She voted with Trump like almost like something like eighty or ninety percent of the time. Like she she was on board as a member of that party and voted you know with what with what the Trump presidency was endorsing almost every time. So it's not she really was not an outlier as a Republican. Her only outlying uh, and and frankly brave thing to do was to challenge the idea that the election was and was jordan is set to become the chair of oversight i mean if you really want a platform from which you can punish your enemies and reward your friends there you go okay well anyway so uh we will i'm, I'm sure we'll have more to say about this after the results come in and uh but we should continue talking a little bit about uh the republicans in disarray uh thing that's going on because for the first time the constant effort to say you know republicans don't know what they're doing there is now real evidence that um the republican position in november is very perilous so the story that came out yesterday is that the uh senate the the committee responsible for uh raising money uh to support republican candidates for senate in the midterm elections uh is in catastrophic shape it's being run by uh senator rick scott of florida who is himself a billionaire but apparently doesn't know how to raise to have rub two nickels together to raise 10 cents and uh they don't have any money and so in highly controversial in the races in which Republicans actually need to win in order to take control of the Senate. The uh, it appears that uh, this uh, what is it called? It's the was it the uh, R the NRSC is that National, Republican National Republican Senatorial, Senatorial Committee, Committee right? Um, is pulling out of its ad buys in four key states i think it's four ohio arizona pennsylvania and georgia i think and like in arizona which is really interesting uh they are pulling out everything like every, everything they reserved past october 1st uh they're they're surrendering now there it, it is possible that viewing that seeing or thinking that the country may be descending into recession they may be surrendering this time with the hope and the thought that they'll be able to buy it back cheaper in October because who else is going to buy it? We're going to be in recession. Ad rates are going to go down on TV stations and radio stations and they can get a better deal. You know, people do this with real estate. Sometimes they pull out of real estate deals and then go back and buy the thing that they wanted after the market crashes. Still, if you assume that it's not that Machiavellian, what's going on here is they don't have money and they're looking at the polling numbers and they're saying it it's the middle of august and we're already worried that we're going to be throwing 
good money after bad. Let's not throw good money after bad. That is the most startling thing to happen here. I mean, the one thing you should be able to bet on is that Republicans can win one seat, can net one seat in the Senate and take control of the Senate. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, but they elected these catastrophically bad candidates. Um, and uh, Senator Scott has been a, a really unimpressive chairman of the NRSC, as far as I've seen. Not just, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, ad buys and supporting your candidates and what have you. But like, remember when he came out with that uh, competing platform? Like for some reason, the guy thought that he could just introduce a competing platform for the entire party, um, which included the politically catastrophic, albeit tempting to the very small remnant of people who care about our fiscal getting our fiscal house in order and reforming entitlements but it came out with this you know everybody needs to pay taxes including you know we're getting rid of the of the progressive tax structure and everybody needs to have some sort of a buy-in it's a very ryan-esque sort of philosophical kempian idea of how everybody needs to have some skin in the game and be a stakeholder um and republicans looked around and said what what are you doing no one asked for this this is a nightmare and then he had to backtrack off of it um now Probably nobody else remembers that but us, but it's an indication of his political instincts, which aren't that good. I mean, the guy was a two-term governor of Florida. I don't know how that happened, but um, he doesn't seem to have his finger on the pulse. Well, so we've been talking now for 15 to 20 years about the progressive weakness of the national parties, of the Democratic and Republican parties, how they are no longer, they are shadows of what they used to be. There's no internal discipline. There's no backroom manner. They can't get candidates they want. They can't get candidates out of races that they think are bad. They can't do anything. And the main thing they can't do, or the main thing that they're having real difficulty with, is raising money because they're now, in part as a result of the Citizens United decision, uh, it is uh, very easy for there to be competing sources of large dollar political funds. And there is one in the Republican Party, and it's the, is it called the Save America PAC or the America First? I'm, I'm not sure what it's called, but it's Trump's PAC. It is the super PAC that is under Trump's control, and it's sitting right now on $110 million. And we've been hearing about this because there is some talk that Trump can't really declare his reelection bid uh, until after the primaries, because the minute that he does, he no longer has control of this money uh, as a stated candidate. Don't ask me what provisions of the law make that the case, because I don't know, but I'm just going to take it on faith that what I've been reading is correct. So I think there's an element of this, they're pulling back on these ad buys of daring Trump. That is, Trump is the person who was responsible for Blake Masters being the candidate in Arizona, for Dr. Oz being the candidate in Pennsylvania, for um, J.D. Vance being the candidate in Ohio, and for Herschel Walker being the candidate in Georgia. And uh, they're all losing. They're all in all polling. Every one of these guys is behind, and he made them, so maybe he should pay for them. He's got $110 million. Let him give each of them $20 million. That's what it's for. It's not for sitting there holding it and saying, I have a lot of money. 
maybe it's to, you know, employ people and, you know, uh, have Trump world paid for. But nonetheless, even doing that can't eat up that much of the resources there. But think of all the legal fees that he's got to pay. And now the man is under siege from the federal government himself. We can't deprive him of his. This is a necessary bulwark against the interventions of the state. But I but he can't use the money for that. This is who knows that they don't know that this is this is rhetoric. Well, I'm talking about what Trump knows. So this is a very interesting political moment for him. There are the the Senate Republicans are saying we have no faith that these candidates are going to win. And we want to focus our money elsewhere on shoring up the seats that we have, maybe on throwing money at Joe Day and Tiffany Smiley in Colorado and Washington State, respectively, for possible surprise victories, maybe New Hampshire, maybe working, maybe Ted Budd, who is the, you know, who is uh, up by a point in North Carolina. And uh, that's a, that's a pretty much a 50-50 state now. So, He's going to need a lot of support, but they don't want to throw this money up. Okay, now what? You wanted them. You wanted them. And if what you want to do is prove that not only is this your party, but that your candidates are the candidates who can prevail and win, and that is going to be a harbinger of your success in 2024, Donald Trump, pony up. The one thing we know Trump does doesn't do is pony up. You know, the one thing he doesn't do, and he learned in 2016 that his brand was so incredibly powerful that he, in fact, only committed, I don't know, 50 or 60 million dollars of his own money to his race, whereas Michael Bloomberg committed a billion dollars to his race and got, you know, three delegates at American Samoa and Trump became president of the United States. So he's right in his own way that money is almost useless to him because he has this almost astounding capacity to get and retain attention. Yeah, but, but he also yeah. he, his history also tells us that he uses money as a as a way to wield power against those who have less of it. We, he's got this history of not paying his vendors, of kind of like making them sue him for basic uh, exchange of goods. I mean, he's he's kind of bad. He uses money as an expression of his own narcissism. And I think in, in a way, when we look at how he's put forward some of these terrible candidates, uh, he he and and how he also has abandoned or talked smack about people who don't do as well as he thought they would. He he'll just turn on a dime. He doesn't care, but he's not going to spend his own money because his money is a is a is a tool for manipulation. It's not necessarily just money to him. I mean, in your theory, John, is 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 the idea here that he's just going to take the hint? I mean, somebody's going to have to come right out and say it. I, I don't know. Uh, it just happened yesterday that the NRSC announced this giant pullback. So um, I don't I don't know you know I, I'm just throwing this out there that there is this there is this there is this uh, nine figure amount of money sitting in a bank account somewhere that is not being spent on elections that Trump controls and he has all these candidates he wanted to run for re-election and um, from what it's not just the public polls that are showing trouble. For these guys, I've heard in at least two cases, and I can't say where, or how, or when, that in a couple of these states, the private polling, which is being done by Republicans, is way worse than the public polling in a couple of in a couple of places that you would not expect. So, um, 
Well, Amy Walter was talking about this. There's been now a few consecutive polls showing Marco Rubio being kind of soft in Florida and Val Demings creeping up. And that seems like a shiny object that Democrats probably can't resist, but they should. Um, but he's just he's not on the air and Demings is same with um, Ohio. Right. Ryan's right. all over the air. So there's sort of unresponded. They have monopoly on the airtime and, and that's not going to last in the fall. So they expect some reverse reversion to a a mean that we've been observing for the last 18 months. And that's a reasonable expectation, but they do have to be answered. You know, that assumes that you are go up in the air in the fall. Look, you are absolutely right. I mean, let's put it this way. There is no way in a rational understanding of American politics that J.D. Vance doesn't win the Senate seat in Ohio. That is now a rock-ribbed red state. Trump won it by eight, right? There is a sitting Democratic senator there, but he has been there for years. It's There's a popular Republican governor. Uh, the only people who don't like the Republican governor are ma MAGA types mad because he wasn't really all that hostile to masking and COVID protocols, Mike DeWine, but he is, he is going to sail in. We could have one of these situations in which, you know, DeWine wins by 10 and Vance loses. Vance shouldn't lose. There is no reason for Vance to lose that seat. But he may. Uh, it is a, a Ryan, Tim Ryan, who is a brilliant candidate thus far, is running a brilliant race thus far. And again, as Noah says, you he's three months out, like things could get bad. You know, Vance could be keeping his powder dry and have a really good campaign to go starting after Labor Day, including negative stuff about Ryan. He's not letting out uh, and is going to drop it later. But so far, Ryan is a very formidable candidate. And it's not just that Republicans have bad candidates in a lot of these places. It's that Democrats have pretty good candidates, right? I mean, Futterman is is a is a fantastic candidate except for his stroke. And now saying except for his stroke is a big thing to say. But, um, you know, Futterman is a kind of once in a generation, you know, object can't like fascinating, weird, different, compelling uh, striking, unusual, you know, like like a like a you know black swan potential candidate, and now he has this terrible thing that is is dogging him. But you know, it's not again. If Oz could win that seat if he had a crap Democrat to run against, but 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 he doesn't unless the health turns out to be that. Uh, Mark Kelly isn't a great. Senate candidate in Arizona, but he's not a terrible candidate. And Ma it's not clear that Blake Masters name, but a terrible candidate. And Herschel Walker, again, somebody who should be waltzing into that seat, is five points behind, and he's 10 points behind Brian Kemp, who is the governor, who is the Republican, who is up by five, and he's down by five. So these are all Trump's people. So uh, the are the the Republican Senate people who are who's you know that's Rick Scott, but it's also Mitch McConnell are saying we can't waste our money on this, just lighting a match under these people who we could do a twenty million ad buy and then Blake Masters will say something or like have a meeting with a neo Nazi and that'll be the end uh, that'll be the end of that. So why would we do this? And there's Trump sitting there. I don't know, but I mean if you're if you're in the habit of my voice and you're a Trump fan, go try to, you know, tell Trump to get his people elected, because if he gets his people elected, 
Ron DeSantis isn't going to run. I mean, if they if they run the table, if there's a if there's a, a red wave and these bad Senate candidates get in, notwithstanding them being bad, Trump will be the nominee by acclamation. So if you want that, go get him, get him on the phone and tell him to start spending that PAC money. Okay, am I crazy? The president, the former president, has several ready-made excuses for why he never loses and why his people never lose. And the bloody tunic is as valuable a motivating factor for his movement as objectable, objective, observable victories. It doesn't take yeah. a, a lot of imagination to envision the scenario in which all these candidates don't don't measure up and it's not it's not anyone else's fault except for the quislings in the republican party yeah but i think john's point about desantis is, is actually the most interesting here because it's true that that you know look if trump's candidates lose it's because everything is fixed and the and it was an unfair election anyway right um so he doesn't lose exactly but it is the only it, it does then give DeSantis the opening um, uh, uh, to run, uh, regardless of, of whatever excuse making is going on in, in Magaland. And, and DeSantis has been has been out campaigning for some MAGA candidates outside of Florida, obviously. And I mean, what the other theory is that the Trump people and I don't think they're this savvy or canny um, or consistent it, are maneuvering him to to be a running mate right sort of kind of shunting him off into a position where he's not going to be able to be a real rival to trump but could be absorbed by him right well look we've said this before trump's going to be 78 years old during election year uh and somebody's going to run against him just in case he you know drops dead on the campaign trail i mean i i i I hate to be this you know blunt but i mean you got an old guy that's not in good shape in a very you know in a very dramatic situation he i know he seems like there's no reason to think his mother lived into her 90s but you know you don't know what happens and somebody is going to just take a flyer and just sit there as a placeholder in case catastrophe happens i could be pence pence is clearly gonna run but i mean the whole thing about desantis is if DeSantis is going to run, he has to go at Trump on three levels, in my view, or whoever goes at Trump has to go at Trump on three levels. Number one, uh, you're too old. We just went through it. We have an old president and we, and we're seeing the consequences of that. And there's nothing you can do to hold back age like that's that's. Life. Uh, you know, you're going to have to nap in the middle of the afternoon when, you know, when 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 bombs are falling or something like that. It's called executive time, John. <laughs> Number two, um, uh, you're focused on the past. The only thing that really excites you is the past. And uh, we are, you know, we are at a hinge moment at which we're going to decide what the next 75 years of, of the American of American life are going to be culturally, politically, economically. And all you want to talk about is 2020. And you have, you know, some people who really just all want to do is they want to do is talk about 2020. And that's not who's going to decide this election. I'm here and I'm 44. So it's my future. It's everybody's future. It's my kids future who are, you know, and and I'm 44 years old. And then the third is policy. 
and to say, look, you know, you did a lot of great things as president. I, I'm not hearing a word about what what on earth you're going to do to help the country in the future. Here's what I'm going to do. Bamba da ba da ba da ba da ba da. Now, we learned in 2016 Republicans don't care about policy. But if it is a, if it is a subsection of a multi-pronged, multi, uh, you know, front strategy, it's pretty impregnable. But it is necessary also for the party for there to be evidence that the Trump message absent Trump or the Trump, what Trump wants for the party is not pleasing enough in places where Republican senators should have won and turned the tide and sent and sent uh, Chuck Schumer back uh, into the minor and into the minors. So Trump has a lot at stake here is all I'm saying, even if he thinks he doesn't. And he has animal cunning. And he has this money, which he can't actually repurpose to his own. He can't, like, write checks. He can't, like, give it to himself. Probably give it to his kids to some extent, but not, you know, not in those levels. So why wouldn't he spend it? He should spend it in this way, you know? I mean... Maybe he also looks at them and says, yeah, they're a bunch of morons. You know, I chose them because they're they're loyal to me and I didn't need anybody yelling. But, the, you know, look how terribly they're doing. I want to distance myself the way I distance myself from Roy Moore and other people. You know, or and the way I cut Mo Brooks off, even though I endorsed Mo, Mo Brooks in Alabama. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Where do we go from here? COVID funding? From, what? COVID funding? Because we've been talking about this as far as, you know, some of the things that Republicans could be throwing away if they uh, fail to capitalize on the incredibly friendly environment that they've been taking for granted for the last 18 months is a retrospection, retrospective on uh, the efforts that were made to get the country through COVID, whatever you thought of them, um, whatever you thought of the urgency, the exigency of the moment. Uh, we did end up shelling out about $5 trillion um, with very few strings and minimal oversight, according to the New York Times in a piece today that you should go read um, because it describes the inundate, inundated prosecutor's offices who just cannot catch up with the workload around what the New York Times describes as billions of dollars stolen by thousands of people. Um, there are many billions of dollars that were wasted, some really uh, brazen fraudulence that was encouraged by uh, attorneys, by fintech outfits um, that uh, fleeced the American public. And there needs to be a reckoning with this sort of thing. And I mean, we're not talking about just the half a dozen other things that we did during the pandemic that were um, flawed, to say the least, the closing of schools, the uh, uh, what we did to to children in the absence of any sort of socialization mechanism, um, the fact that we had this very destabilizing social experiment, and then all of a sudden the cities uh, immolated. Um, there's a lot of a lot of looking backward that needs to be done, and Democrats aren't going to do it. Only Republicans can do it, and there are a lot of political rewards to be had for doing this, um, but they only get to do it if they get control of at least one chamber of Congress. And then, as we said earlier, Jim Jordan is going to be in charge of that process. So maybe it just is, is a, is a wash altogether. Well, and it happened under 
both presidents. I mean, it happened under Trump and under Biden, um, which I think makes it sort of less appealing uh, as something to pursue um, because it's not a clear uh, sort of battle. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't let you come down on one side and attack the other in very clear terms. Well, Senate Republicans actually have their hands clean for the most part. Um, with the exception of a handful of provisions in the very first package that was passed in March of 2020. Um, remember all these big negotiations over, you know, the, Nancy Pelosi intervened in those negotiations and introduced her own competing uh, package that was going to fund the Kennedy Arts Center. I mean, all this sort of stuff that, you know, Republicans managed to beat back a lot of that in 2020. They didn't in 2021 um, once they lost control of both chambers. But there is a, a narrative that Republicans in Congress have uh, that they can pursue, perhaps to the detriment of of Donald Trump, but it's not easy. To, it's it's easy to get around that. I don't think that's that's an obstacle that the, that would really prevent them politically from making the salient argument that we threw, you know, trillions of dollars that we don't have at a problem that uh, ended up resolving itself to the to the point where uh, you know Democrats were still trying to appropriate funds for this thing, even in the height of the Omicron wave when uh, vaccinations were so highly saturated that it had almost a negligible effect on employment rates and and gdp growth at the time um and the it's the inflation narrative it's the root of the inflation narrative so i don't think it's a it's a hard hard case to make if they wanted to make it well there's also a broader uh, uh kind of simplified case that might appeal to voters who don't want to get into the weeds of the details of where the fraud's occurring. And, and a lot of it, there's small business fraud, there's individual fraud, there's there's a lot of fraud. And that's what has long been a, you know, conservative uh, bulwark messaging, which, which was kind of lost under the, certainly under Trump and even a little bit under the uh, Bush presidency. And that's that there's always more of a cost when the government starts taking over and spending in areas of life where it doesn't really belong. So you can argue, yes, we needed an influx of money during COVID, but the excessive spending, the kind of stuff that really, you know, towards the end, people were saying, this is too much, even setting aside inflation. The cost now that we're paying is to root out all the fraud. That takes time and money and federal government workers and investigators to unearth that fraud. I mean, the cost of these bills is actually going to be more than double what we are paying or what it what we claim to have budgeted because rooting out the fraud, both the, both the money that didn't go to where it should and now the cost of workers who have to, government employees who now have to find the fraud and prosecute it. And they'll never get all of it, obviously. But the, but the smaller government messaging, which has basically disappeared from our, from our uh, public debate, is due for a resurgence, particularly at a time of inflation, to say we should not be just throwing government money at these problems. First of all, the federal government shouldn't be solving all of these problems. Some of these are problems that should be solved at the local level or at the individual level. That's one thing. But secondly, when they throw money at a problem, it actually often makes the problem worse down the line. And this is where we're seeing this with some of this COVID, COVID relief funding. Yeah, I'm I mean, looking they... at the schools. The schools have not even figured out, at least in my own city, they got a ton of money. They still haven't figured it. They're like, we're going to upgrade our HVAC. We're going to get rid of all these problems. Well, school's about to start in two weeks here. They haven't done, there are many, many schools that are still having all kinds of problems because they didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't, that bureaucracy was not able to put that into action and they've had years to do it. Schools are still sitting on a ton of money. The states are still sitting on a ton of money um, that progressives actually want back. Um, and yeah, there was, there were efforts to, you know, reorient schooling towards uh, you know, a culture shift, engineer a culture shift in these schools to get EID practices embedded uh, in 
in education that that should be low hanging fruit for Republicans. I mean, you had the, the Republican Study Committee has this great document about all the ways in which this funding was just thrown at things like environmental justice boot camps and and syringes and safe smoking kits for a lot of anti-racism training when it was spent money was spent on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, too. sure. Oh. It's just really old school pork that like and and obviously this ideological objective on the left. But like, you know, horse rack, horse horse racing tracks. As, that's the sort of stuff that your COVID money went to. And this is like 20th century politicking here. But that's but that's the problem. I mean, I think I think I think the culture war stuff is the way in here, because if, if it doesn't fit in to if, if, if it's just about old fashioned, uh, accountable governance. Um, Nobody cares about that anymore. It, yeah, it's not sexy enough. Uh, no, but well, I that's think the root you- of our problem, isn't it? You could have two fronts, therefore. You could have Republicans and conservatives going on the culture war level. And then you could have the New York Times and the mainstream media and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and others going at the corporate malfeasance, big business uh, business theft, like using the levers of government to enrich themselves uh, during this unprecedented time. And so you could come at it cross ideologically uh, to some extent. Um, uh, you know, there's an area in which uh, everyone is going to be uncomfortable, and that's the uh, the PPA loans, you know, the Paycheck Protection Act loans, which were uh, an effort essentially to privatize unemployment insurance, right? The idea was keep people on your payroll, apply for a grant, you'll get a grant if you can prove that you kept people employed during the entire time, uh, we will forgive the grant uh, and everything, you know, will will go on as it is. But I mean, I, I think there was $600 billion or something that went into the Payroll Protection Act. And you know that that's got to be the most defrauded program probably in the history of the federal government. I mean, that is that is just like, who is ever going to prove who is going to be doing oversight the banks the you know i I mean there are too many loans the uh accounting firms there were too many loans there was too much going on and now that it's all over again it's this question of do we consider what happened in COVID the equivalent of war and will ambitious members of congress which i guess is where noah started here will they look at this and say this is my chance to kind of transcend being just a sort of partisan player and say at a time of crisis, we did something to try to save the country from disaster. And then there were all these people who profiteered off it and that's just wrong. And we're going to have an accounting of it and we could do it in a bipartisan way. We could do it in a nonpartisan way. We could do it in a wildly partisan way let let's see what happens but i i mean if you if we were all sitting here betting would we bet that this is going to happen do we think that there is going to be a major issue made in 2023 about the amount of money of out of this four trillion dollars that was effectively you know stolen or misappropriated or whatever because i would say probably not <laughs> i i think I think that there is a weird hunger among people who are part of the COVID hawk world to pass the veil uh, over all of this and say everybody meant well. 
everybody meant well. We closed schools because we meant well. We made everybody wear masks because we meant we meant well. We had mandates, vaccination mandates because we meant well. Everybody was just trying to save lives. And you're just going at people because you're mean. And that could really affect the way the media cover it and the way Democrats handle it. And then and then have an inner and then color the way Republicans might go at it if they don't take the right tone, which is just a lot of this stuff worked and a lot of this stuff didn't work. And we need to figure out what worked and what didn't work because this is going to happen again. And with that, we will uh, draw close. We're doing a weird thing tonight. Just letting you know, because we might have the sh- might have the podcast out early tomorrow. Uh, we're all we all have terrible scheduling conflicts tomorrow. So we're actually going to do a commentary uh after dark we're going to we're going to tape uh the thursday podcast on excuse me we're going to tape the wednesday podcast tonight at 10 we're not going to have results from wyoming i don't think unless you know uh, maybe we'll who, who knows it's a small state so we could talk about that but you know i don't know maybe maybe you know no will tinkle the ivories and you know we'll do some you know we'll do some singing and you know campfire stuff and all of that that's that's what we're going to present to you open uh, mic tomorrow. night with commentary that's open that's, mic night yeah, that's right go. yeah exactly okay name that tune uh anyhow so uh you can look forward to that uh, for tomorrow as for today uh for abe no and christina i'm john pot keep the candle burning